Welcome back to Juzan Film. My name is Harry Aden Sozer. That's Aden Sozer, no relation to uh, to the Aden Saucers of late. Uh, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, Daniel Zana. Hi, everyone. My name is Daniel Zana. Uh, I stole your gag and it didn't even work. And I'm a <laughs> video editor and documentary filmmaker and also a Jew. You know, our guest today is an actor who's appeared in such films as Brick, Looper, Knives Out, and is the writer-director of the new film Blood Relatives, now available on Shudder. Noah Segan, welcome to Jews on Film. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here with you guys. Yeah, we're excited to have you today. Uh, we're going to be discussing Young Frankenstein, directed by Mel Brooks, starring Gene Wilder. You know, before we get started on the film and discussing a lot of the uh, plot and themes in the movie. Plot in quotes. Right, right, uh, exactly. sort, of, uh, sort of has its own, uh, it has a plot, it has an amazing plot, but uh, it definitely goes all doesn't over the place, doesn't it? always feel like it? the point. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. I just wanted to ask sort of, you know, about this film and what your relationship to it is and ultimately sort of what made you choose this film for us to discuss today. You know, I, I hope we get a chance, a little bit of a chance selfishly to talk about uh, uh, the movie that, that I made, Blood Relatives, which is an unabashedly Jewish film uh, and also a little bit funny, maybe not as funny as uh, Young Frankenstein, uh, a but bar. a a genre film um and a genre film not only that plays with with horror but plays with sort of one of the famous monsters you know young frankenstein was a big inspiration for my movie it's a big inspiration in general for uh, for my work uh and i thought this this couldn't have been a better opportunity to talk about it nice and so uh as a quick follow-up uh you know what sort of draws you to like these classic monsters what do you love so much about them i love genre I believe that everything is genre. You know, filmmakers like the Coen brothers, I think, you know, every movie that the Coens make is a genre movie. Mm -hmm, and sure. most people sort of agree with that. It's not like a controversial statement. <laughs> right. But I think once you start acknowledging I'm playing with a heist or I'm playing with a monster or I'm playing with science fiction, um, you you have a sandbox to play in. And, uh, and from there, you know, the, the, the sky is the limit, how you want to subvert that, how you want to embrace it. I feel, uh, uh, pretty strongly that I kind of agree. Every movie has to be a, a genre movie. And, and in my case, I, I, I love monsters. If only that, you know, um, no pun intended, there's something very universal about them. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I, I want to ask, because I, I think it's so interesting, and I, I agree with you in, in terms of the, the genre-ness of, you know, especially these monster films, but this this movie that we're talking about today, Young Frankenstein, is one of those interesting crossover films where it's it's a horror comedy, which as a, as a genre kind of feels like very contradictory. And I just, I want to hear your thoughts on how to actually create the horror comedy and where, where that kind of plays with tone a little bit, because I think that's the toughest thing to kind of, you know, generate both you know, feelings of horror, but also, you know, get your audience laughing and how does this movie do it? And, you know, how, to, how have you tried to do that? I will say now something sort of controversial, which is that, uh -oh. Uh -oh. Um, and I say this as the husband of a comedy writer, a very, very successful, prolific, brilliant comedy <laughs> writer, that funny people tend to know fucked up shit. And people who are into really fucked up shit tend to be less funny. I don't actually think it goes both ways. I think there's a there's a huge overlap. There's like, you know, definitely a Venn diagram, but it's 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 not a total eclipse, right? And I think that, you know, when we talk about Brooks in this sort of macro sense and we look at I don't know. I mean, everything from the producers to blazing saddles, uh, space balls, I mean, 
Robin Hood. I mean, you're talking about somebody who is obviously interested in genre right. and obviously interested in sort of playing within the sandbox. And so I think that if, you know, he's approaching that from a place of comedy, no matter what, it's going to be funny. That's sort of his, you know, and, and, and so I think, you know, kind of in that broader sense, that's sort of kind of what I was trying to do is I was sort of trying to say, you know, nobody ever turned off a movie they were like laughing at. Right. Nobody ever yeah. was, was like, was like, this is really entertaining. Fuck this. <laughs> you know, people, they'll turn stuff off if it's very challenging. They'll turn stuff off, even if they can acknowledge something is really important and really profound. But it tends to be really difficult to deny comedy. And I think that that's sort of why people gravitate towards comedy, even for something like a, a horror movie. Harry, what do you think? I, I, I've been jumping the gun these last few episodes, trying to get you to do the IMDb summary too early. Are we there yet? Or do you want to head over to Daniel's context corner? Which do you feel like is the more appropriate turn right now? Um, uh, let me get us the, let's, let's get the context so that when we get to the summary at all, oh, it all okay. makes sense in context. I think all that's right. a good way to do it. Noah, Harry, can you follow me to the, to the way back machine? Let's go back to 1974. So, it's uh, in February 1974, Blazing Saddles is released. Then you flash forward 10 months, and then Young Frankenstein comes out, which is insane if you think about it, like two amazing movies in the year. And just I'm going to provide a little bit of context so our listeners who are not as familiar can get a little bit more understanding of, of sort of the context surrounding and by all means pepper in, you know, any sort of uh, anecdotes you may have heard or, or things like that. But during the, the filming of Blazing Saddles, Gene Wilder had this idea of a Frankenstein story where it was the great-grandson of the original Dr. Frankenstein, and Mel Brooks was interested. Gene Wilder said, I'll do it with you, provided that you're, like, not in the movie, that you don't make a cameo, that you don't kind of, like, wink to the camera. You always kind of, like, break the fourth wall. So they agreed upon it. And, uh, you know, in this interview from 2016, Brooks said something like, little by little, every night, Gene and I met at his bungalow at the Bel Air Hotel. We ordered a pot of Earl Grey tea coupled with a container of cream and a small kettle of brown sugar cubes. To go with that, we had digestive biscuits and step-by-step step, ever so cautiously pre proceeded on a dark, narrow, twisting path to the eventual screenplay in which good sense and caution are thrown out the window and madness ensues. And I just like love this idea that they're hanging out, drinking tea, and just like creating a screenplay while they're already making this classic film of Blazing Saddles. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Uh, this is a nod to the original Frankenstein movie that came out in 1931 starring Boris Karloff, uh, directed by James Whale. We'll talk about this more as we kind of get through it, but there's like tons of uh, period appropriate film devices, iris wipes, dissolves, dolly shots, um, expressionist lighting, and they shot on black and white film. And I just wanted to give a shout out to you, Noah, um, as you played Edward Jr. in this series, uh, you must remember this, in the Bella and Boris series, which I really enjoyed. Great job on that, great job on the series. And for those who are interested, uh, definitely check it out. With all that context, do you, do you all feel kind of more equipped to discuss the film? I mean, I feel like I was born ready. So while I appreciate, <laughs> you know, while, while I appreciate the context, I got to say, I mean, I, uh, I feel like I am the context. Right, right. <laughs> I love it. Fair. I love it. I'm excited to get into it. What I, what I did appreciate about that, what you were just sharing, Daniel, is just that story, that anecdote about Gene Wilder asking Mel Brooks not to appear in it. He didn't want him to do one of his classic cameos. And that's interesting because I didn't notice that specifically wasn't in the film, but 
just tonally, especially after we discussed Blazing Saddles and having seen a couple other Mel Brooks films, there's a real earnestness and a real almost love. It's a very loving homage to these old monster films. You know, it's not supposed to be as much a send up as maybe some of the later movies are. So I definitely it, that 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 story, that anecdote really lends to to the read that I think I got with the film. So I'm very excited to jump in. Cool. All right, then. TikTok, it's IMDb time. Here it goes. So uh, there's a couple different summaries to pick from this week. I, I found one that I, I think they were trying to be a little bit funnier with it. And uh, I just figured that was appropriate for a comedy. We'll see if that works. But a young neurosurgeon inherits the castle of his grandfather, the famous Dr. Victor von Frankenstein. In the castle, he finds a funny hunchback called Igor, Igor a, pre- a petty lab assistant named Inga, and the old housekeeper, Frau Blucher. <laughs> and, and that's in the summary. Young Frankenstein believes that the work of his grandfather is only crap, but when he discovers the book where the mad doctor described his reanimation experiment, he suddenly changes his mind. All right. So we've got the context corner. We've got our IMDb summary. We're packed up. We're ready to go to Transylvania. Uh, Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back and then we'll dive into our plot. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Noah Segan to discuss the film Young Frankenstein. Harry, you want to get us started with the plot? Yeah, definitely can. So uh, the film opens with Dr. Frederick Frankenstein, as he likes to point out, is how he refers to himself. And he's a lecturing physician at an American medical school. And we see him teaching this class and kind of clashing with the student over his legacy, but also the pronunciation of his name. The student is pleading with him. He says, you know, you're, you're like, what about your grandfather's experiments, reanimation, life, and, you know, Dr. Frankenstein is very much, I I only care about life. I don't care about reanimating death. So he becomes very exasperated in this conversation and insists that he has no relation to to his grandfather and their experiments. So uh, a solicitor basically shows up in the class and informs him that he's inherited his family's estate in Transylvania after after the death of his great-grandfather, the Baron Bufert von Frankenstein. And uh, that kind of leads him on his journey. So he travels to Europe. He, he takes the train to uh, to Europe to uh, inspect the property. So when he gets uh, there from the station, he's met by his uh, hunchbacked, bug-eyed assistant named uh, Igor. And he also meets Inga. And that kind of sets the plot in motion with him, you know, beginning his stay at the Transylvanian resident of Beaufort von Frankenstein. I think the film opens up with this sort of very slow old style opening you know we have the castle and we kind of like zoom into it they show all the credits out we have all the wipes and things like that but there's like a couple funny scenes to call out you know certainly you know the goodbye at the uh, train station where they're like she you know gene wilder is uh trying to say goodbye to his fiance played by madeline khan and she keeps like sidestepping his advances and his kisses and they end up just uh you know, elbowing, which I heard was like an improv on set. And then he gives her like a kiss and tosses it her way and she sort of dodges it. There's a lot of like, a lot of sight gags, a lot of verbal gags. You know, we'll definitely get into that. I mean, the introduction of Igor, played by Marty Feldman, is like a classic character. Again, lots of sight gags. I think initially when he gets picked up from the train station, there's that sort of uh, walk this way gag where... Walk this way. way he hands him a cane and he hunches over and and, uh marches on and it's it's interesting i found the 
walk this way gag was actually a old vaudevillian joke and it's sort of like a repurposing of that joke the the old version of the joke says uh, you know a heavyset woman goes into a drugstore and asks for talcum powder and then the bow-legged clerk says walk this way and the woman answers if i could walk that way i wouldn't need any talcum powder so that's <laughs> like the initial joke and i think this is a sort of a repurposing and hilariously redemonstrating of that joke oh i i think you know what's so interesting about how the movie starts with this, you know, ostensibly sort of modern day kind of, you know, a lesson that the young doctor, uh, the gene is, uh, is giving is that it really does sort of feel modern from the, you know, there, there is sort of, there isn't kind of, you know, obviously it's black and white. There kind of isn't a wink to it going the direction that it ends up going in the minute that he, he, parts ways with with Khan, which is that it starts traveling back in time tonally mm -hmm. to a place where it kind of lives in, which is this incredibly, I mean, with, with the exception of, you know, some of the more kind of modern camera choices, it, it really does sort of play like a silent film, you know, and you could argue that like most, if not all of the jokes could be intertitles and also physical comedy. And that's sort of like, they're like, yeah, like I'm, I'm trying really hard to think of like a mechanism where you sort of couldn't do that and have it hit just as hard the minute that he kind of go, gets on the train, which of course is like a very, you know, that sort of goes back in time to like the 1940s. And it's obviously supposed to be Casablanca. It's supposed to be, or like a Dimitri film, something like that. And then yeah. it really does go to- silent movie territory right. where it stays. And there, as I said, there are some sort of modern camera choices, right? Like there's a lot of close-ups, you know, we have the wipes and the transitions and these things that are kind of, I don't know, probably more akin to like a 1950s monster movie. Right. But the choices are very distinctly not 1974. Every choice is anything but 1974. Right. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to look this up now, but like, yeah, Star Wars was like three years after this. So if you compare like this film to like Star Wars, obviously different genre, but like what you're saying, it's, it's, they could have, if they wanted to gone a little bit more modern, but I think what, you know, what you're saying is spot on that they are purposely making it film feel super old and, and very period specific. You know, the way you're describing this and that transition, because it really does start so modern, I think it addresses one of the questions I had with this movie was, why did he decide to tell this story from the perspective of the grandson kind of reliving the path and effectively walking through all the same steps that his grandfather, you know, presumably could have, or th this movie could have just been, a, a, you know, a more, you know, a more historic set film about the original, you know, Frankenstein going through all these same motions with the same kind of stealing the brain, finding, you know, enraging the, the crowd. Like it really does play almost beat for beat like the Frankenstein story. So what, what's the purpose of even setting it back, you know, a little bit more contemporarily and then having our one character kind of, you know, litigate these questions of, of his legacy and of, of his, you know, relationship to the past. And, and that, that's kind of, and I'm, I'm giving away my own answer. Some of the thoughts that I had about this, that yeah. it's, it's almost, it's in some ways about, engaging with the past you know that's not just what the film is doing that's what the film is, is about it's it's about you know kind of falling repeating the mistakes of the past falling into you know the sort of destiny and we'll, we'll talk about this scene later there's a huge scene where he's having where you know he wakes up from a nightmare kind of screaming you know i will go with my destiny and you, you see him falling into this type to this type of person that would be 
commonly found at a sort of over the top, you know, 1930s, 40s, 50s esque, you know, horror film like this. But I think it's a conscious choice by Mel Brooks to kind of start him at one place and then have him fall into that. This is more than just an homage to that time. The whole film is about kind of the homage to that time. Like that, that's kind of what I'm trying to make sense of here, you know, with the with the decision to place it you know, in the present, but also have it regress back a couple generations. If you don't use that mechanism, then you, I mean, first of all, it's not as funny, right? Which is what any of these guys would say is what's the funny choice. We're going to make the funny choice. I also think you have to consider this is part of the new Hollywood movement, right? Like these guys are counterculture guys and we sort of don't think of them that way. Maybe we think of Wilder as it, but we, but we don't think of, of them in the same way that we think of, you know, the, uh, the Peckinpahs or the Scorsese's or the Dennis Hoppers. Uh, I think frankly, because of the Jewishness and mm-hmm. because of the comedy. And yep. I think that it, you know, and, and of course, ironically, this was like, you know, during a time when there were kind of the biggest, sexiest Jewish movie stars, there were the the Goulds and the Khans, right? And, and the yep. Brookses, you know, and then of course, to a lesser degree, I think, you know, at least Woody Allen thought that he was a sex symbol. I don't think anybody else right. did, but- right. That's probably a different podcast. Um, point being, though, <laughs> point being, though, is that I think that that you know, just like all of these movies that were being made during this sort of ten-year period of time, let's say sixty-nine, seventy-nine, sixty-eight, seventy-eight, whatever it was, that sort of Easy Rider, Raging Bulls kind of kind of era, you had all of these filmmakers who were answering to what it was to be a child of. World War II, to be a child maybe of the Depression, if you were a little bit on the older side. Obviously, the sort of, you know, the 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 what we now consider like the boomer mentality and kind of, you know, what what sort of like eventually it all fucking came to roost, right? Eventually it was like, mm-hmm. wait a minute, all these people ended up becoming Republicans, except I think Mel Brooks. Um, right, right, <laughs> but, um, no, I'm sure Marty is still a bleeding heart, I'm sure a lot, but you know, I mean, look, Dennis Hopper, I mean, you know, Eastwood, a lot of these people that we think of as sort of these kind of like lions of counterculture and, you know, they all became fucking dumb libertarians. Right. So I guess all of this is to say, I think that the commentary on making this black and white movie and on sort of speaking to your heritage is really not dissimilar to what a lot of filmmakers were doing at that time. We're sort of like waking up in the late sixties and the early seventies and going like, holy fuck, did, did I, I got screwed up. They really fucked me up. My parents really screwed me up. Right. right. Yeah. So many of Scorsese's films, I feel like, have so many personal elements to them. Um, obviously, there's like a layer of, you know, narrative embellishment and making things. And same with Coppola, too. But I think you're you're spot on. It is very much all about multi-generational trauma, you know, and today that's how we end up with like Encanto, which, uh, you know, is is awesome, which is fucking awesome. It's like, that's so great that we get like Encanto and Turning Red. But it's about generational trauma. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Great call. No yeah. questions. I, I I like the the modern analog. I mean, it also reminds me of just right now, you know, we're in the midst of an Oscar season where it feels like a couple of different filmmakers are, are telling way more on the nose than I think this is, but the story of them growing up, you know, and their grandparents and their histories. I mean, The Fablemans, the new uh, Steven Spielberg movie comes to mind where he's literally unpacking kind of his, you know, his, his literal childhood. You know, I don't want to call it trauma. I haven't seen the film yet, so I'm sure it's, you know, all the positive influences he's had too, but... That, that's something that filmmakers always do. And, and I, I agree with you. I think that's what's going on here, where he's just, th- this whole movie is about, 
you know, our Frederick Frankenstein, right? We should refer to them by their names, but Frederick kind of trying to escape the the the, the legacy that was put forth for him by uh, you know Victor and and I think through the movie he kind of he fails to that but you know we'll see if there's some redemption by the end but uh daniel do you want to get us kind of moving a little bit more in the plot so we can absolutely so once frederick arrives uh with inga in a horse-drawn carriage driven by uh igor they arrive at these this huge uh castle estate and they meet uh frau blucher who's played by (laughs) cloris leachman at this point, I think this is maybe her first Mel Brooks role, but then she goes on to star in History of the World Part One and then also High Anxiety. There's a lot of gags here. You know, we have the knockers joke and we have the whinnying horses, which are these like runners and repetitive jokes, which are, I loved it every single time. And then, you know, as he's sort of settling in, he discovers a little bit more about his great grandfather's legacy by finding his laboratory. He finds his journals and he decides after reading the the journals to change course a little bit and embrace his destiny rather than uh, flee from it. So uh, Igor and uh, Frederick go steal a corpse of someone who was recently um, executed. They grab a brain from the brain laboratory, as one does when you are trying to reanimate a corpse. (laughs) It's an abnormal brain. There's a whole gag about that as well. Uh, So we transplant that into the body and we get going to start the process of bringing our monster back to life. I wanted to see if there's any thoughts on this whole process of kind of getting acclimated in the castle and then deciding finally to go from being this very well-educated professor to this renegade scientist who's now going to be reanimating a dead corpse it's all about uh you know it's it's everyone's true worst fear right it's every it's everybody's uh, real horror movie moment that we all eventually become our parents right mm. which you know i think <laughs> is again sort of speaks to this like you know i remember i had a uh I had a cousin who, you know, was second or third generation on my mother's side. We're fifth generation New Yorkers, but this was on my father's side. He's second or third generation. And he said, you know, that, uh, you know, he would travel, he would do all this crazy travel, he traveled to Eastern Europe. And at one point he went to, you know, this small, you know, former shtetl where supposedly, you know, some great, great grandparent had come from. And he said that he got on a bus and he looked at everybody's hands who were hanging on to the straps on the bus. And he said, everybody had my fingers. Whoa. I feel like, again, you know, it's sort of a, it's such a Jewish experience to kind of bold faced acknowledge I am inescapably connected to my heritage And, and it is, and it is this like, you know, whether it's, whether it's no, again, no pun intended across you bear or this sort of Sisyphusian experience of like pushing the boulder up the hill. Like the fact that Wilder's doctor becomes his grandfather again, not only is it funny, but it's kind of the only way that the it's, it's, that's the gag. The gag wouldn't work if it was, if it was the original Frank and Dr. Frankenstein, right? The gag mm-hmm. only works yeah. if you become the thing you are trying not to become that you just schlepped halfway across the world to avoid. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's definitely, there's, you know, certainly a modern day analog with the whole changing of your name. I mean, like tons of people when they came to Ellis Island, changed their Frankenstein name to a more, I would argue it's maybe not 
not not a huge uh, change to Frankenstein, but like this idea of like trying to make yourself, you know, distant from your immigrant past and trying to hide things. Uh, but like you said, Noah, it is sort of inescapable. Consider Wilder himself. I mean, who was born, you know, Jerome Silverman or something. I yeah. mean, or, you know, yeah. Silverberg. He's kind of taken the piss out of himself, you know. Uh, I, I just actually uh, looked it up too. Silverman. Right. And Mel was, of course, Melvin Kaminsky. Give right. me a break yep. here. I mean, that's, they're, they're, they're looking yeah. in the mirror. Right. Yeah. And I think I think what you were describing, Daniel, just about escaping that or that sort of immigrant past that they're kind of falling from. I mean, there, there's a real outsider read to everything that's going on. Right. He, mm -hmm. He's he's come to America. He's from Transylvania when we first meet him in the beginning. So there, there's that clear sort of immigrant path where he's I'm trying to disconnect from my past. And like you said, Frankenstein doesn't change much and it doesn't really you know hide who right. he was, but he's still kind of separating from there. And then I think even when he comes into Transylvania, and could, that could be because, you know, we don't know how many generations already he hasn't really been there. So maybe he's he's kind of in that in-between state of that sort of immigrant where you're, you know, you're not quite at home at either place. But, you know, he gets back to Transylvania and we'll see the entire town immediately turns on him and they're right. kind of ostracizing him. And and this goes back to uh, I wanted to make a point about some of the gags we were talking about, some of those, you know, language gags and, and the sort of language barrier that exists, because we spoke about this a lot when we did the, the Duck Soup episode talking about the Marx brothers because they really also did a lot of these you know language gags but a lot of that is born in this inability to access each other's language and there, there's so many points you know with Igor and with you know some of the other characters he talks to where you know there's there's that moment where you know Frederick is sitting in the in the car and he's kind of saying he's like werewolf werewolf there what werewolf there castle why are you talking that way? I thought you wanted to. No, I don't want to. Suit yourself. I'm easy. And there's this disconnect that again, it is just such a it's it's such a funny, ridiculous gag. But on another end, it, it creates this language se separation that kind of exists between you know Frederick and the rest of the characters. And we're gonna get up to this because right now we're we're coming upon the big scene when we actually meet the monster, but you know, we'll see that that's something that the monster, who I think in a lot of ways will see parallels you know, uh, Frederick's story, but he similarly struggles with that, that language barrier in particular. So I just wanted to point that out here. Last thing before we jump forward, I just wanted to call out that awesome scene where um, Frau Blucher is trying to make uh, Frederick at, you know, at home. So after they are introduced to the library, she says, Would the doctor care for a brandy before retiring? No, thank you. Some warm milk? Perhaps. No, thank you very much. No thanks. Ovaltine. Nothing. Thank you. I'm a little tired. And I will say good night. Good night. I just love this sort of, another thing we'll probably touch on is just this, this mother mothering aspect, you know, whether it's uh, Frederick, creating a monster and being a parent and creating a child or, you know, Inga or taking care of him or, or uh, Frau Blucher kind of taking care of him. There's a lot of, you know, sort of parent child relationship going on as well, but calling that out is something to keep track of as we kind of march through the plot. In a very, again, a very Jewish way, right? Oh, this yes. sort of like doting, no 
kind yeah. of pressurized, oh. you know, you're actually not helping someone, right? Right. When you, when you, yeah. when you're, when, when this is how you take care of them, this is, you're not actually doing them a favor here, you know, which, which uh, yeah. again is sort of the, um, one of the major tenets of, of the film being again, such a Jewish film is that the only one who's kind of not smart enough for her own good is the Shiksa. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Elizabeth, yeah, 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 for sure. She's, yeah, I think that's, it's often her role. It's it's funny, you know, uh, in Blazing Saddles too, she's uh, Lily Von Stupp, who's kind of like the airhead. Harry, do you want to take us to the next beat? What do you think? Yeah, for sure. We have that big sequence, that big sort of Frankensteinian sequence. And like I was saying earlier, this is, you know, as much an homage as it is a parody. And there's a real attention to detail here with recreating the sort of, uh, the Frankenstein coming to life sequence. And I actually think I even read that they had contacted the original set designer and were yeah. able to work with them. They used the original stuff from the 31 film. They found the prop master and they gave him credits uh, because he didn't get credits in the original film. So they put his name in the credits for anyway, go on. No, I love that. So Frederick brings the creature to life. He uses the electrical charges he can kind of gather from a lightning storm. And, you know, it, it takes a little bit, but eventually the creature wakes up and it takes its first steps. And, it's at least it seems a little bit sympathetic, but then Igor lights a match and all of a sudden it becomes very uh, scared and enraged and it starts attacking uh, Frederick and nearly strangles him. But eventually they're able to sedate the monster and an amazing sequence. I think we should uh, we should call out with the sedated sequence. Meanwhile, the townspeople have started to gather because they're a little bit uneasy about a Frankenstein living in their town again. And they meet up with Inspector Kemp, who they kind of plead with to uh, do something about it. So he suggests that he visits Frankenstein and he, he he goes to the castle. And this is all while the monster is sedated and you know moving down below. But there's this great sequence where Frankenstein is, is trying to talk this uh, in, inspector out of, you know, being suspicious. And he uh, eventually convinces him that he's not going to re repeat the mistakes of his grandfather. They have nothing to worry about. And the inspector leaves. Frederick then runs back down to the, uh, to the operation room, basically, to uh, discover that Blucher had been in the process of setting the creature free. She explains that she was, you know, a, a former lover of, you know, Victor von Frankenstein. And, you know, she believed in his mission and just wants to, uh, you know, is so happy to kind of create life like this and just wants to set him free so they try to keep him down but the creature is then enraged by sparks from a thrown switch and he decides to run out and escapes the castle lots to say here uh i think one thing you you kind of touched on is the uh you know that sort of charade scene this idea that like he's being choked out by this monster and yet he has the wherewithal to play a very complex game of charades and they're able to you know it's just the sort of taking the air out of a scene that maybe ordinarily would be kind of scary and, you know, injecting with a bit of humor. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's funny to like lean sometimes heavily on the humor and sometimes heavily on the horror and sometimes kind of go in the middle and, and see if you can accomplish both. And I think they, uh, they succeed in this in this instance for sure. Also important to point out as we are now at a stage where we know the monster is part of it. I mean, Peter Boyle, incredible, obviously a close friend and collaborator of this whole group. Mm -hmm. Definitely a Gentile. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, right. Interesting. So Interesting. Uh, I think there probably was something, you know, I'm, I'm sure um, at least there's a bit of poetic justice. I mean, you probably can't find a Jew who looks like that anyway. Right. Yeah. He was 6'2". 
Yeah, that's what yeah. I'm saying. You find a lot of Jews that yeah. look exactly like that, but they're five feet tall. Right. Um, so um, I imagine that there must have been a conversation where they were like, listen, if we really want a great monster, it's 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 got to be a Gentile. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I want to also point out in this scene, you know, one of the, the big things that we haven't spoken about with this whole movie, with the whole Frankenstein myth, is the, the idea of the of the golem, the golem, right? That, that sort of Jewish created you know, monster protector. I think you fashion it. The, the famous story is you fashion the golem out of out of clay, and then you know it serves as a kind of protector. And then the reason I bring it up is because you know that the sort of creative monster that's going on here. I I definitely saw connections. I, I did some research actually, and it turns out I mean that that's a a Jewish you know folktale story that that's gone back you know centuries, and that's actually I. I read that there's reason to say that, you know, Mary Shelley was aware of it at the time of the writing of, you know, Frankenstein. And there's a clear interplay between them. I was I was hoping to find more about Mel Brooks, you know, and and his kind of reclaiming of that or acknowledgement of that here. I didn't see so much there. But what I was reading about the Gollum was just that kind of we think of him as this character that's created to protect and in some ways you know he is and in some ways that i think fits into the the narrative we're saying about you know you find that strong you know the the jewish people can't necessarily you know the, the smaller meeker can't protect themselves so you get this you know the six two figure to kind of come in and uh, and protect you but what i was reading is it also comes from you know the story of the golem the myth of the golem is tied to this desire to just create for creative sake and just to demonstrate that ability to you know to bring life and there's there's a couple of quotes I, I i wrote some down that that gene wilder kind of exclaims in these scenes you know he's saying you know tonight we shall command the thunders give my creature life and you can tell he's he's taking on this hilarious i think mad scientist right. role and he's yeah. he's scream he's screaming in a way that we haven't seen him through the film and he's clearly enraptured by his legacy by you know becoming this creator but there really is something that we don't really know why he wants to create this life. Like he wants, he, he says he wants to, you know, have one of the biggest scientific, you know, advancements or whatever for the field. So obviously there's some glory and there's some pursuit of science involved, but it really just feels like he wants to be able to create. He wants to show that he can create. And there's a really, I think, just Jewish idea in there of, you know, the, the concept of B'Tselem Elohim, which is the, the idea that, you know, Jews are created in, in the image of God. And, and, you know, there are famous, you know, rabbis who suggest that the way that we can act on that is by being creative, so to speak. And it's, I think in, in real life, it's impossible to be as literally creative as bringing life to something as he's doing in this scene. But that scene just really suggested this idea of, you know, creativity for creative sake and, and introducing this, you know, this column, this, this character to the world. I feel like there's a lot of parallels like we already talked about between, you know, creating of life um, and like, you know, this movie and then also just like being a parent and like creating life. And, you know, there are those people who say that like creating another human being is like a very selfish act and like you just want to see yourself reflected in your child. I would argue that like, you know, maybe you could say that, but like the moment that Frankenstein creates a monster of his own creation that he can kind of take credit for, it becomes this completely selfless act because now he's on like damage control where he's running around trying to soothe this creature, trying to make sure it doesn't hurt anyone, uh, trying to make sure that he can get it kind of under control. And, you know, it's a lot of work and I definitely see a lot of the parallels uh, between, you know, parenting, but also like you said, Harry, of like, this sort of godly notion of like creating another human being. It's funny, I had not considered the obvious Gollum connection, which is absolutely, absolutely there, I guess, because I'd always thought of the Gollum as 
as not being in humanity's image, but being in the image of what we need, Mm -hmm. which when I say that out loud, of course, that's exactly what Frankenstein is, right? Right. And Edward Scissorhands for that matter. I mean, any of these, you know, Pinocchio, whatever you want to call it. But I think Mm -hmm. what happens in the movie in this movie is that separate from the Gollum experience is this is this sort of there's a point at which the monster very much becomes part of the family mm-hmm. and yeah. becomes sort of accepted and sort of you realize that the notion of all of these people being a bunch of outsiders who are all kind of connected and 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 in it with one another is much more important than whether or not you know any of them are particularly good <laughs> they definitely develop that sort of like connection as everyone kind of gets more used to each other i feel like definitely igor and frederick kind of get along more and they start to speak each other's language a bit more you know and inga's there to kind of take care of uh, frederick and things like that uh it's uh it's a good it's a good band of people. I think even, you know, even with the music, I feel like they are able to kind of see what's going on with the monster and, you know, first it's Frau Blucher who she reminds Frederick that her grandfather's monster was soothed by the violin. So that's sort of like a recurring thing is that they're able to care for him in a way, whether it's by music or later on Dr. Frederick decides to give him compliments and things like that. But uh Let me jump ahead to the next beat if that works. So our monster has escaped uh, from the castle. So the monster roams the countryside and it has a few uh, encounters kind of similar to the original story. He, He comes across a young girl and they have a, you know, a pretty lovely encounter, pretty low key there. She's she's very welcoming to him. You know, he ends up, I think, tossing her through the window <laughs> and putting her right to bed. I think that ended out okay. Um, and then he also comes across a uh, a blind monk uh, who is played with in a nice cameo role by Gene Hackman, who I think he was at like either a country club across the street or someone, I think Gene Wilder was friends with him and playing tennis. Gene Wilder said that he was doing a Mel Brooks film across the street and Gene Hackman said, oh, let me, can you get me a role? So they, they put him in the film and uh, so that was kind of, he wanted to do like a bit of a comedic turn. So, you know, that whole sequence with the, with the monk is hilarious. Not a lot of, like you were saying before, Noah, like it's all physical comedy. And I think that could have easily been done with, like you said, inner titles or just without sound because that the humor there in that scene is, is awesome. I think I forgot to mention that after the monster has escaped, they managed to track him down and trap him and bring him back into the castle, at which point they sort of like figure out how to tame him. And then they realize that they will be doing a presentation, which is our most famous scene of them doing, uh, putting on the Ritz in their tuxedo and tails. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? And everything goes really well, and you think things are kind of going going forward. But then I think there's a light bulb that goes out, and a spark flashes, and then the monster sort of freaks out. And at that point, the audience has their vegetables ready to go, and they start chucking the monster, chucking like rotten fruit and things like that at the monster, who becomes totally enraged and sort of charges and jumps into the audience. Uh, but then he's sort of crowd surfed out of the auditorium with all the police who are about to throw him in jail. And uh, Frederick is just beside himself. He doesn't quite know what to do. But Inga is there to relieve some of his tension. So they hang out on the 
operation bed and they consummate their relationship in this suspended reanimation table. The one thing, you know, when you were describing the sequences where he's, you know, the monster is meeting the little girl and he's meeting the, uh, you know, the blind man played by Gene Hackman, it's just, it, I think it goes exactly to the point you were saying to before, Noah, just about putting together this family of outsiders. And it's the only people that you can conceive that just wouldn't be instantly judgmental and would kind of relate to him either you know, as as a fellow outsider. So it, it feels like it's building up the family. You know, it's a, it's a shame we don't get to see those characters after those right. sequences because they really do feel like they fit the mold of of the characters we've met living in the house. Yeah, and, and I, was, I was just thinking, uh, you know, there's a moment, I think there are moments throughout the film because, again, I don't think the movie can sort of exist outside of it being really, you know, a very expensive very, very diverse in terms of media vaudeville act, right? The whole mm-hmm. thing is, and and it eventually becomes li- like, I mean, almost quite literally a filmed vaudeville act. And, yeah. and so the dovetail between whatever we're trying to say and whatever we're trying to find about uh, uh, comedy and Jewish comedy and yeah, the Jewish experience as it sort of relates to something like this. And then, you know, okay, we we kind of get how that is part of, of, of filmmaking. We get how that's definitely part of like, you know, the kind of birth of the studio system. So we have this connection to these original films that were, of course, run by Universal, run by Carl Lemley, who was a Jew during the height of the rise of Nazism, right? All of this is sort of a affecting young Mel Brooks and young Gene Wilder and the other young filmmakers. But to, again, even go sort of further back to the root of that, to vaudeville, something that I'm sure all these people experienced and were engaged in, even if they weren't, you know, the most successful, they became successful in film. It it sort of becomes that. And then it becomes kind of an answer to it, right? Like you sort of have this very satisfying experience where you're like, what if I could just fuck up everybody in the audience? <laughs> Oh. Which is which is sort of the culmination of this incredible vaudevillian. You know, it's like you know, I gave I gave this great performance and you didn't love it, so I'm gonna fucking destroy all of you. Yeah. Is is the real dream, right? You don't see my way, well, you're gonna pay for it, definitely. There is another scene, you know, another instance of sort of mothering, except it's done at this point by Gene Wilder to the monster. He does visit the monster in the prison. And, you know, he tells his band of outsiders, he says, no matter what, don't come and get me. I'm fine, no matter what I say. So he goes in and he realizes that he just needs to kind of boost his monster's ego and kind of make him feel like he's one of one of the people. He, he's not one to be shunned. He's a well-meaning monster. So he goes in and he just compliments him. And then he goes in and he rubs his face and he kisses him. He says... This is a nice boy. This is a good boy. This is a mother's angel. And I want the world to know once and for all and without any shame that we love him. Just this idea that he's just being such a loving parent. Noah, we had a question for you. So in Blood Relatives, you're playing a vampire who's a family man, right? And, and, you know, we have a monster here who just wants to be liked. And so I want to know, what is it about, like, being a sympathetic monster that's, like, so appealing to the audience? And maybe you could kind of talk about your process as far as, like, creating this vampire who's much more loving, potentially, 
then you know the standard issue vampires which maybe are a little bit more gruesome and less likable in in my movie it takes a long time to get there we mm-hmm. don't start off in in sort of um, you know this kind of bucolic, perfect family relationship. It's actually it's sort of what the movie is 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 about is kind of finding that and figuring that out. I think there is a sentiment that I think a lot of people, especially people who who are ethnic, frankly, or or who identify as 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 another, you know, whether it's it's whatever, you know, sexuality or, or ethnicity, creed, w- whatever it is, if you feel marginalized, if you feel like, you know, you could sort of come from another and other perspective, there's this sentiment that you're a monster. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this sentiment that your family are monsters, maybe, but yeah. What if we turn around and we say there are monsters? They're good monsters, right? We all know the good monster. We all know that 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 concept, right? Of course, that's a big part of Frankenstein. It's less so a part of something like Dracula, right? Where you know, or or, or you get into zombie movies, right? I mean, you start right. to get into you know maybe harder to find examples, but they exist. I mean, they all exist. Yeah. Everybody has always sort of said, what if you are my monster? Uh, in fact, isn't there a movie called My Monster? There is a movie called My Monster, yeah. right? Isn't there a movie called My Monster that was sort of like a kid's movie that's sort uh-huh. of about that? Yeah, I mean, like the end of Shaun of the Dead, you know, his best friend is a zombie, but it's like his zombie and he's kind of like hanging out with him and it's like a lovable monster, but- uh, Yes, yeah. yes. And so anyway, I guess I guess to, to sort of answer your question, to speak to your point, I, I, sure. I think that the vessel that the monster gives us is something that in a lot of ways is more acceptable than the real reason we feel different. The real reason we feel like we are we don't belong, which is because we're queer, because we're Jewish or we're black, you know, or or, or we're, you know, we have we're differently abled. I mean, that's actually scary because mm-hmm. that does get our ass kicked. Right. But when you read about Dracula or you read about Frankenstein, even though they may be persecuted, They've got a they've got a, a defense. They've got something that can keep them up. You know what I mean? Which again is is to tie it all back to something like this. That's comedy. You know, if you make somebody laugh, they're much less likely to kick your ass. I feel like that's a lot mm-hmm. of comedians say that is they like, you know, the, me- the reason I became a comedian is not uh, stopping people from laughing at me. It's sort of controlling and and deciding when they laugh at me. And I, I love the point that you're making. And I, I think that, you know, by putting it in a monster and kind of presenting them a certain way and making them, you know, so to speak, ugly, I think that it it reinforces from the audience some of that, you know, hatred that they might feel or some of that, like, you know, prejudice that might just kind of be instilled. And I think what this movie really does is it undermines it. And it shows us that, you know, beyond the layer, like, don't judge this monster, you know, for his monstrousness like no one really engages with him obviously there are moments when he is when the monster is sort of you know sparked by fire and goes into a little bit more of attack mode where maybe it's justified to run away but he's almost always provoked by you know the rest of the people before you know he actually initiates anything and i think the movie at every turn is just undermining the, you know the the inherent monstrousness of, of him and, and really all the characters that are you know are, are quasi others and to speak to that as well i i think you know that there's definitely a lot of stuff you know it's 1974 obviously Obviously, these guys are coming from a very different perspective than we come from today in terms of comedy, in terms of what's mm-hmm. acceptable, in terms of how to treat each other, especially how to treat women. Um, but mm-hmm. I think we would still be hard pressed to say that anything escalates further than what we would consider to be like a dad joke, 
right? <laughs> you know, or yeah. something that we would be able to say might just be kind of in, I wouldn't even say bad taste or just, I would say off taste, right? I would say to be able to sort of use the monster as a vessel and use this humor as a vessel to defang, declaw, the abrasiveness, it all works, right? These are why these guys are are geniuses. This is why this movie is still funny and we could still laugh at it is because we can really say, and I think that you you find, you know, I I find this when my Jewishness comes up, I think a lot of people find this. I've, I've heard this from friends of mine who are transgender, right? This idea that you know when someone means ill to you, mm-hmm. you know when somebody... Yeah is making a mistake and maybe they use the wrong pronoun, maybe they use the wrong term and you say, you know what? No, but this person's okay. They're fine. They don't mean me harm, right? Uh, Again, I think that there's something inherent in this film and in this humor where there is nothing that is meaning ill. It is really designed to be inclusive, even if there is some, you know, kind of off-color humor in there. And even if maybe it's a little bit outdated, I don't think anybody's watching it and going, oh my God, these people are are, are really coming after me, which is again, ironic and, and speaks to the nature of the film because it's a movie about people coming after a monster. I mean, there's a lot of parallels to like Blazing Saddles too, with this sort of notion of Sheriff Bark coming to a town, not being accepted by the locals, and then trying to win them over. Um, Just this whole notion of acceptance is maybe it's something that, you know, Brooks weaves in as a filmmaker, but also, you know, obviously is like a Jew and this whole notion of belonging. I think it's something I'm drawing connections to as you're saying all these things, Noah. (laughs) The reason that that the movie endures and the reason it has this read is because it's it's the Frankenstein's monster movie with that's fully sympathetic and, and empathetic quite I, I would say with with the monster itself and that it's not taking the perspective and i, I know the, the story historically doesn't but this isn't the the kind of monster movie that's about you know the sympathetic person that's trying to avoid the clutches of maybe a more antagonistic monster i mean like we were saying before the monster in this film doesn't actually provoke anyone and not for a moment are we are we frightened for you know the townsfolk and we're saying well let's at least sedate this monster to kind of get it away like we're just sympathetic we're rooting for the monster to be you know to have the brain transplant just just so that it could be understood we just want it to be you know and this is a word that i think uh i came across you know uh, like assimilation to a certain extent and just Mm -hmm. how can you like fit in and it's just the question is just how can we get this monster, maybe, maybe, you know, the fault lies with the fact that we need the monster to kind of become palatable for everyone else. You know, maybe there, there's a read and just consistent with how we're looking at this, where maybe the townspeople could have met the monster where it was a little bit more, but, sure. uh, but maybe I'm stretching a little bit here, but, uh, but, but I just think the film asks us like w- the entire time we're watching it, we're just, we're hoping for this monster that it can be accepted. There's no version where we need it to be defeated or where we want it to be locked up or sedated or anything like that. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because like the original brain that we were trying to get was this scholar. Is that right? Like this really well-meaning scholar. And then Igor ended up getting this sort of abnormal brain. And, uh, right. you know, I think after having all this stuff happen, I, I think, you know, Frederick comes to the conclusion that something needs to be done. So so uh, let's just get us to the end of the film so that we can sure. get to where it ends and hopefully discuss some of the theme stuff. But uh Basically, the monster, after this whole endeavor, is captured by the police and is locked up. But we have the sequence where it's, it manages to escape. At the same time, we learn that Frederick's fiance Elizabeth, who we had met in the beginning, is showing up unexpectedly for a visit. So the monster ends up crossing paths with her eventually and takes her captive and then runs away from the home. And 
there's this amazing sequence where Elizabeth is scared at first, but then, you know, due to a, a callback from the beginning about how all parts of this monster are oversized, we see as Elizabeth slowly um, falls in love with her captor and they basically uh, become become a couple, more or less. So um, meanwhile, <laughs> well we go back and, yeah, you've seen the movie. But meanwhile, we go back to the townspeople are now on the hunt for this monster who's escaped from jail. And uh, Frederick, you know, having learned earlier that the monster is drawn to the sounds of beautiful violin playing, decides to play the violin to lure back the creature to the, cap- to the castle and is successful in recapturing him. But we have the sequence where then he attempts to do this procedure that involves Frederick giving part of his own brain over to the monster and the monster kind of trading parts of himself over to Frederick in this sort of transference, I think they call it, the sequence to kind of civilize the monster a little bit, give him uh, some more of a brain maybe than he uh, unfortunately was, or, or a more normal brain relative to the abnormal one that he started with. So as they're about to, product, to conduct this procedure, the mob from outside kind of runs in and there's this moment where the mob is about to stop this transference from happening, but eventually the monster does wake up just in time and is able to very eloquently describe and, and gives this beautiful speech just about uh wanting to express himself to everyone and just not wanting to be judged. And there's just this incredible moment where he, you know, stands up and, uh, and we, we have this happy ending. The mob sees him for who he is now. He has become this kind of normal, not no longer a threat. And, uh, and the mob kind of accepts him. And we have this small epilogue where Elizabeth goes off her way with the now, you know, communicative monster and they get married and start their own life together. And we see Frederick, and he's now with Inga. And there's this moment where the movie ends where she asks him, you know, what did you actually get from the, you know, from the monster and that transference? And he has this, he sort of growls to her the way that he had been, the monster had been growling throughout the film. And she starts singing, you know, some songs and and, and the movie ends there. It's definitely like a callback for that last joke of like when the monster and Elizabeth were together, she sang the same song. And so, um, you know, the, the role of music in this film, like Mel Brooks is a, huge fan of musicals and he's a very musical person. So like these, these songs that are mentioned and, you know, I just loved all of it, you know, the putting on the Ritz and then the sweet mystery of life and just the violin of it all. And everything about it, I think really kind of adds that sort of Mel Brooks flavor to a otherwise like horror comedy film. And I really, I enjoyed it. Um, I, I also love the idea of like this sophisticated monster who has like a part of Frederick's brain and he's now like reading I forget if it was like the Wall Street Journal or something. He's in like his grown-up so, yeah. PJs with his like reader glasses on and he's just kind of, you know, moaning and uh, or no, I guess he's just like talking to her. She, yeah, she's kind of dressed up in this sort of bride of Frankenstein hair. Um yeah, but it's just drawing the parallel between the two now whereas before they were like so dissimilar. Now they have like switched girlfriends so to speak and and now yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I think this transference sequence, you know, and the way that they kind of switch places at the end, I, I think it closes out some of the threads we were talking about with those questions of otherness and assimilation where, I mean, of course, these were the two other characters, so there's not so sure. much assimilation to the general population, but right. even between the two of them, I just think it's this fascinating sequence where we, we've had this character that was so othered, this monster, and the solution isn't only, it's only it doesn't only go in one direction, right? This kind of like cultural exchange is is mutual it goes both ways you know not only does uh not only does frederick get part of his brain but you know we've been talking about language and communication and how that's kind of this sort of othering barrier he's now started talking like the monster like there's this real cultural exchange that 
And again, I don't know how far we're going and how far the film is going with this, but I just think it's fascinating that if we're looking at, at the monster at Frederick as this sort of, you know, the Jewish other and the immigrant other in that read, it's just, I think it's a very inspiring ending that, you know, the monster is not defeated and, or is not like vanquished, right? And, and Frederick isn't pulled down from his, from where he was heading, from his legacy. It's that there, there's kind of this, this society kind of live, learns to live with both of them, basically. And they're able to incorporate you know, their past into and, and have this cultural exchange, I think is, is the point that I'm trying to make here. I mean, they, they both get their, their shiksa. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> totally. That is true. You know, yeah. um, and um, <laughs> I mean, obviously, um, you know, there has to be the joke that the thing that is really keeping Wilder's Frederick uh, from being the best that he could be is not because he's the smartest guy in the room. It's because he doesn't have the biggest dick in the room. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That, that Somehow though, the, uh, right, answer. exactly. But then it sort of beckons the question because Elizabeth doesn't leave the monster. Mm, true. When Despite he his new loses, maybe he's got, maybe, I mean, maybe, maybe the, Maybe we're talking about such a incredible. Uh, what's the enormous uh, Schwanstucker? Like yeah, uh, maybe right. we're talking yes. about like you know, it's there's 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 enough to go around. Oh, um, that's a good. <laughs> that's a good yeah. I didn't consider that, but sure. Um, you know, but my point is is that you know again the sort of ongoing joke that uh, it's not enough to be the smartest guy in the room, right? right. <laughs> you know, right. or, or right. the funniest right. guy in the room, right? right? That's not, at the end of the day, uh, you know, what these guys are telling us who are making this movie is... You need a little something else. You're probably still going to get your ass kicked at the end of the day. I mean, right, that's sort of the, right. that's sort of the thing, right? That's what, keeps the, that's what keeps it funny. It would not be funny. There would not be a funny resolution to this movie if everybody got what they wanted by being themselves. Right. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And I, like, I think, it, I, I really think that that works with the point that I was making, you know, you're not just being yourself. There really is this exchange. And maybe the answer is in the Elizabeth case with the monster that, you know, the monster lost the, the enormous, uh, the spawn sticker, right? And, but maybe, but the new personality and things, it, it kind of coalesced to a new hole that, you know, everyone was happy with, like the, this sort of ap- happy ending. And I, I agree with you on the comedy level that, you know, we're, we're obviously, you know, this whole exercise, we're, we're doing that thing where you kind of dissect and overanalyze comedy and that, that strips it away. So let's not forget about that. It's just a great funny moment. And that, that's a funny, like final line to kind of finish with. But I really think that there's something to the sort of exchange here that it's not just that, you know, comedy comedy and you know being the smartest in the room you know are not enough for you know for the jewish you know so to speak the the outsider character that we're working with mm-hmm. but on the other end you know everyone's kind of missing that little something and there is value to the to the cultural exchange that happens after that so sure i mean whether it's like a missing arm or like a, a missing eye right. or a hunch or like you know a, a half a brain or whatever everyone's got something going on with them it's good to find that like everyone whether it's you know, part of this group of outsiders or sort of people who are on the periphery manage to find somewhere and someone to spend time with and to call uh, to call home. So, Noah, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back and we will give our ratings for the film Young Frankenstein. And then we'd love to hear more about your film, Blood Relatives. Sound good? Sounds great. And we'll be right back. Welcome back to Jews on Film. We are here with Noah Segan to discuss the film Young Frankenstein. So we've talked about the plot. We've 
sort of touched on a couple of the themes and uh, some of the content throughout the podcast, but now's the time where we kind of settle up and pay our bills, so to speak, and rate the film. Harry, do you want to get us started? Yeah, for sure. You know, we we haven't even spoken so explicitly about the Mel Brooks of it all, but right. that that is like a it's a cheat code for for a Jewish ranking for our one you know, specific <laughs> ranking system, the cheat code to win with us, or at least to get at least, you know, a couple points to start is Mel Brooks. And he always infuses a Jewishness into his films. It's interesting because I think the Blazing Saddles model that we've discussed that really is, you know, the one with the cameos and the one that's more winking and the one where there's, you know, anachronistic Yiddish worked in, that to me feels very Mel Brooksian and very, and very Jewish. And this movie in some ways is very earnest. Like we spoke about this at the beginning, but it really is an homage and homage to these, you know, earlier creature features to these, you know, classic horror, or, you know, universal horror monster movies. And in some ways, like I just, I don't think in the humor itself, other than I think there's a lot of like the language stuff we were talking about and a lot of the, uh, you know, the misunderstandings that is clearly rooted in some Jewish humor that we saw back with the Marx Brothers that has gone, you know, back even earlier than that, that I do think there's a case to be made that that, there's a Jewishness to that humor. A lot of this film played in, I just think, a, a different kind of earnestness and a different kind of, you know, over the top vaudevillian humor that, I don't know, I, I didn't see it as as clearly Jewish as that. Like that being said, you know, we spoke about the thematically and I think that, you know, thematically these ideas of, of the other and of the immigrant story are, they they stretch beyond just the Jewish experience, but really do feel kind of born out of Jewishness. So it's funny. I don't think that the content necessarily gets so many points in terms of the Jewishness, but there's so much there with themes. So that that's kind of where I'm floating with this. And I think that will inform you know, where, where I'm kind of feeling with the ranking, but I'll get to that at the end. And Noah, why don't you share with us, what do you think in terms of the, the Jewishness of this film? I cannot think of a more Jewish movie than Young Frankenstein. And I don't want to compare it to Blazing Saddles or Spaceballs or any other Mel Brooks movie that is, I feel, unabashedly Jewish. Mm-hmm in a vacuum what what is i mean what is more jewish in this movie that was made by jews right i mean uh, you know everybody everybody above the line i guess maybe with the exception of 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 terry gar in terms of 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 acting producing writing directing i mean it was it was all jews i mean mary shelley not a jew but in terms of you know again even the you know okay maybe not mary shelley but if you're you know kind of trying to, to mimic uh you know the the universal movies and you're looking at at the Lemley years at Universal. I mean, you know, you you can't escape the Jewishness of this movie and you can't escape the Jewish humor. You can't escape the vaudevillian performances. I guess Peter Boyle, again, not a Jew, but sort of not a Jew on purpose, sort of, right. again, designed right, by right. design know, uh, yeah. to be uh, uh, the monster needs to sort of be a Gentile. <laughs> so, um, you know, if you forced me to compare it to Blazing Saddles, I mean, is there technically less Yiddish in Young Frankenstein, <laughs> sure. But I guess bit. even by by sheer location alone, <laughs> okay. by by being that mm. much closer to the uh the the, the homeland, so to speak. The old country. Uh, really. Yeah. I mean, you know, it 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 just couldn't be more more Jewish. I'm guessing that was probably German on the train, right? So we're going 
as we're arriving to Transylvania, I think there's a scene where the conductor talks about, uh, you know, Grand Central, whatever. And then you hear a couple arguing in the background in English. And then we're in Transylvania. Yes. And I believe they're talking in German. Hans, er macht es schon wieder. Na, was soll ich denn da machen? Aber jeden Tag. Du lass ihn, lass ihn. Transylvania next. Jeder aussteigen für Transylvania. Which is somewhat related to Yiddish, so maybe we could give it some points there, but I think that's a little bit of a stretch. But, um, you know, as far as myself, I feel like, you know, cast and crew, Noah, you covered it. A lot of Jews uh, involved in the making of this film. Content, not a whole lot. You know, it's a, it's a retelling and a reimagining of this original Frankenstein story. But, Harry, as you mentioned, there are connections to the Golem, so there are points awarded there in my book. Uh, thematically, I think you know, we touch on this a lot. We touched on this with the Marx brothers, this notion of like otherness and eventually of assimilation. You know, I think that is a very Jewish or Noah, like you said, any marginalized group sort of feels othered and out, you know, at, at parts of an outcast uh, society. I think a lot of people experience that, but for the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to be uh, tagging that as maybe like a Jewish theme that uh, would award points in my book. I think overall, you know, I have seen more Jewish films, like you mentioned, Harry, Blazing Saddles has Mel Brooks speaking Yiddish and, you know, has, you know, some of the uh, characters talking to camera saying, nah, that'll be too Jewish. So I didn't get that here, but I think, as we all mentioned, this is an homage to an earlier uh, horror film and it's not supposed to be kind of a, a Jewish film. So I'm going to come in a little bit more pessimistic here. Noah, do you want to go first and give us your numbers? Uh, sure. Um, how many stars of David, uh, can I throw out? Uh, one out to five, five. Yeah, one no. to five. I mean, I'm giving it, I'm giving it five across the board. Wow. Uh, frankly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm giving it five across the board. I am, I am fully, uh, I will, I will go to the mat, uh, regarding the Jewishness of young Frankenstein. Um, I really do not think that uh that that i think you could probably be more overtly jewish if they were literally speaking yiddish if they were actually sure. if there were hebrew subtitles on the film it would be more but but i think you know again uh, uh you know we can only speak from our own experiences and you know we are three american jews relatively well assimilated here um at least i think you guys are american right are you guys uh yep. you know but, i mean but you know so 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 I, I guess what I mean to say is that uh, from my Jewish perspective, this is an Ur text. Right. All right. Right. Harry, yeah. numbers? Yeah. No, I, I, it's like you're causing me to rethink this a little bit because I, I really do agree with you. And I think that there's something just very foundational and very like, you know, this isn't just the immigrant's tale that we're talking about. It, it's Mel Brooks doing the immigrant's tale and, you know, putting it through this case of the, you know, the Frankenstein story and through the homage. But that's, it, it goes back to the conversation we were having at the beginning about genre. And it's, you know, mm -hmm. the kind of stories that you can tell and the kind of empathy you can draw by, you know, burying your kind of your, your story through the frame of, of, of genre and, and what's going on here. And I agree. I think the content isn't as explicitly Jewish. We've been comparing to other Mel Brooks movies, but there's even some movies we've seen that are just, you know, very literally about someone struggling with a Jewish idea or someone going to a yeshiva or something like that. And and there's so many different facets to the Jewish experience that, you know, like you were saying, Noah, like that we we have, you know, a perspective on it, but but certainly not all of them. But 
I don't know. I, I like the read of this as just the foundational Jewish text and, and clearly a body of like, you know, just Jewish humor, you know, writ large, you know, and, and how that is kind of manifest, even when that's not explicitly like we've been saying Yiddish or about something so Jewish, like it, it still is the Jewish humor. I can't bring myself to the five, but I'll still I'll round up a little bit and go four stars, four out of five Jewish stars. Oh boy, I got to be the other in this podcast and be the monster yeah. here. But I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm looking at the IMDb page right now for Blazing Saddles, and there's like Hebrew written across Mel Brooks's forehead as he's dressed as like the native chief and stuff like that. And and that film, this film didn't have that for me, you know. Um, and it's not supposed to, you know. It's a monster movie, and there are definitely Jewish uh, themes. So I think I'm gonna probably go like three and a half stars or three. Um, I hope we don't have to go to the map for that, Noah. Um, but I did want to thank you so much for being here on Jews on Film. Um, and I really want to urge everyone to go check out Blood Relatives. Uh, do you want to tell our uh, listeners where they can find that film? Yeah, um, we're a Shudder original, so go ahead and enjoy it on Shudder or AMC Plus uh, if you are an AMC Plus subscriber. Um, and we should also be eventually on VOD and in physical media, uh, as well as uh, if you are not in a location, a country, a territory that has Shudder, uh, one of your, your local distributors should be able to offer it. I didn't. I definitely didn't make a movie that is as funny as a Mel Brooks movie, or even as true to the original text as Young Frankenstein is. Yeah. Which is actually, I mean, there's there's quite a lot in Young Frankenstein that is taken from Frankenstein. Uh, I did not make a Dracula movie, but I made a vampire movie, and and it is unabashedly Jewish, and it is very much sort of about, you know, kind of trying to reconcile my. Jewishness and my heritage and the kind of built-in ethnic trauma, frankly, that we carry with us and try not to pass on to our kids right. um, and try to maybe choose to live in the world as a monster, but as a monster that will leave the world a little bit better than we found it. There is a little bit of, of Tikkun Olom there. There is a little bit of this sort of sense of kind of, um, how does this monster movie help us a little bit? And and I think Young Frankenstein is a great example of that because obviously it does it by being the most entertaining film ever fucking made. <laughs> I hope my movie, which is also a little bit earnest and a little bit sincere and has a lot of dad jokes in it, might do so uh, for, you know, for, for a different kind of audience, a different kind of generation. Nice. Looking forward to checking it out. Uh, I encourage everyone to do so. Noah, uh, where can people follow you online to catch up and keep up with all that you have going on? I mean, who knows uh, these days how we can find one another uh, in in what feels like a uh, you know. I mean, we you know we're recording this podcast. It could be you know by now, it, you know, social media could be a smoldering. You may literally have to come like find me at a coffee shop and like come <laughs> talk to me and we'll have a cup, we'll talk. You know, it might be one of those. But uh, assuming that social media still exists, uh, I am uh, generally findable under my name. Under under uh, my handle Kid Blue, uh, which is a, a nickname that I had, and then a character that I played in a movie, and so then I got stuck with it. But I can generally be found. I'm, I'm not hard to find. I, I I'm easy. All right. Well, next time you're in Seattle, your cup of coffee is on me. Um, I heard you guys have a lot of good coffee in C in Seattle, huh? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely a lot of good stuff up here. Uh, right now it's raining, so I wouldn't come just yet. But uh, you know, if you're if wait you're a in couple town, months. 
Yeah, wait a couple months. And um, did you want to talk about Glass Onion at all, or do you want to keep it stick to the blood relatives? No, we can we can talk about Glass Onion. I I um uh, I don't know if you guys have had a chance to see it yet, but uh, you know I've I've worked with um, with Ryan and and that whole team of people for many many years now, and um, it's safe to say they owe all of their success to me. And, yeah, uh, yeah. and could not do any so of it without me. Yeah, yeah, no, they could, they could, they can't do it without me. So, um, you know, it, it would be very awkward, um, if we didn't keep playing together. And all I can say, if you haven't seen the movie yet is my very minor, uh, contribution is a little bit of art imitating life. Um, and I hope there's some humor in it, but, uh, you know, as, as far as a, a film goes, I mean, it, it, it's a testament what Ryan has done and, and, and Daniel and, and Rom, their producer, the, the whole, the whole team, what they've done is, is really a testament to trying to tell a continuing story mm-hmm. by really doing the thing that works, giving people what they want. Like the thing that we really loved about the first movie, just do more of that. You know what I mean? Yeah, like exactly. it's, I it's, 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 it's really not trying to, you know, it's really sort of a yeah. lesson and like, you know, there's nothing broken here. We don't need yeah. to fix it. We just it. want more of it. Yeah. We want seconds. We want another yeah. helping. The, the right. food is delicious, please. And, um, sure. and so I, 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 that's, I think how we felt making it. That's how we feel enjoying it now. I hope, uh, people who watch Let's it feel the same way. Harry, any last thoughts here? No, just looking forward to seeing to seeing that, seeing your other movie, and uh, it was it was such a pleasure to have you on here today. Uh, I really appreciate it, guys. You know, I enjoyed the podcast. Obviously, uh, you know, as a Jew on film, uh, <laughs> quite literally, right. I feel like uh, it's a very important resource, and 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 I hope uh, I hope our, our listeners, uh, you know, uh, were able to to revisit Young Frankenstein and enjoy it again. I hope you've already seen it folks. Yeah. Yeah. And if you've listened to the podcast and you have not yet watched it, sh- shame on you, but no, honestly, pause the podcast, go back or you, the podcast is done at this point, but you should go back and watch the film. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely. And uh, Noah Segan, thanks again. This is like the Jewish goodbye, but uh, you know, thanks again for, for joining us here on Jews on Film and uh, we'll see you next time, everyone. Bye. Jews on Film is hosted and produced by Harry Ottensasser and Daniel Zana. Daniel edited this episode Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Jews on Film and subscribe to our podcast to get new episodes. Thanks for listening.